You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. I love Jesus today. Does anyone else share that sentiment with me? Oh, my. I have known the Lord for a while. I'm not going to tell you how long because you would think I should be a better Christian. So, but it's been a while. We have been studying the book of Ephesians and some of this is going to be a little bit of a review and I'll tell you why. The revelation Paul details in the book of Ephesians is some of the most remarkable, significant, important um, insights into the gospel you find anywhere in the New Testament. And um, a recent poll said people come to church 1.7 times a month. And so today's review for 2.3% of you will be hearing it for the first time. (laughs) So it's not a review. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Some things we need to hear until we get it. Amen? And... um, Paul, three times in the book of Ephesians, called his gospel a mystery. And the reason he would call it a mystery is that God, by the Spirit, has to really reveal to you the gospel for you to make the kind of connection with the Lord that makes a difference in your life. Because that just seems to be the way it works. Um, I heard a guy say recently that... um, Everything you'll ever be, you already are. Say that with me. Everything you'll ever be, you already are. And what he meant by that was the idea of the acorn and the oak tree. Inside of every acorn, everything he'll ever be, he is already. It just hasn't completely matured yet. And I think that's just such a great concept because everyone here today has an opportunity and potential to live a significant, meaningful, productive life. And the reason I'm a pastor, the reason I'm a Christian, the reason I uh, believe what I believe and do what I do is because I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ and our understanding of it is the key factor in helping us become who it is we already are. I believe the gospel is the most significant message in the world. And I believe it has the absolute potential for all of us to grow and to develop. So that's why we're studying um, the book of Ephesians. Um, As I mentioned earlier, uh, do we have the prayer up here, Jeremy? Thank you so much. On three occasions, I mentioned this earlier in Paul's letter, he referred to the gospel as a mystery. And... He was, he was so profound. In chapter 1, verses 3 through, I think it's 13. Ten verses are one sentence that Paul wrote, if you look at the original language. Why in the world is that true? It's because he had such a profound revelation, all he could do was gush it out. All in one sort of um, excited, revelatory proclamation 
And so if you read all kind of different translations of the Bible, which I do, they break it down into all these different separate sentences. And as a result, uh, different people get from it different things. Nevertheless, Paul called the gospel his revelation, something that had been hidden down through the ages, but had presently been revealed to what he called his holy apostles and prophets. And so Paul writes these letters based on the revelation he has of, of the gospel. But then he also does this. He prayed, and you find his prayer, a couple of them actually in the book of Ephesians. Um, you find him praying after he writes this letter, you would think it's enough to read the letter, right? But it's not enough to read the letter because inside the letter, Paul prays that people would actually see what he is he is saying. And so I want us to pray that same prayer together. I rearranged some of the pronouns so we could make it personal. And so I have it up here. And um, let me take a look. Okay, we're going one verse at a time. So, how many of you want to pray this prayer with Paul? Well, the rest of you, we shall... Um, no, come on. What, what if our lives could drastically improve because we saw more in the gospel that we had seen before? Let me ask this question. Do you think there's more in it than you already saw? Do you think your life... My life, come on. This isn't about me. I'm not the hero here. You are. It's about, so I ask myself, does my life accurately portray someone who really understands the implications of the gospel to its nth degree? And I have to say, after all these years, no, there's more. I don't mean it's different. I'm an Apostles' Creed Christian. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about some kind of revelation that changes the basics of, of the faith. But there's something that has to happen. Something has to go from our um, this sort of stuff that goes on in our minds, this chatter. How many of you know about the chatter that goes on in our minds until it drops down into something profound in our hearts that overrides all that other stuff coming through that other place. I know that's, that might not be the best way to describe that, but how many of you um, talk to yourself? Yeah, isn't that strange? There are two of you somehow. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> if you're talking to yourself and you're listening and somebody's talking, so I'm just trying to figure this whole thing out. Now, the reason is the, the, the brain is a very mysterious thing that we have. And it needs to be renewed. And the idea behind having a renewed mind is that your mind in an unrenewed state gets you in constant trouble. Through depression, through anger, through bitterness, through frustration, through hatred. All of those things are the result at some level or another of what you think about life, what you think about yourself, what you think about God, and how you feel like you've been treated as opposed to how you should have been treated. So what we need is we need a gospel more profound than all of the noise. And that's what Paul's praying. And we're going to pray that here. So verse 17, let's pray this out loud. Why don't you stand up?
let's make a little motion towards activity here. And I want us to do this out loud. We might even do it twice. I pray that the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would impart to all of us the riches of the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation to know him through our deepening intimacy with him. Verse 18. I pray that the light of God will illuminate the eyes of our imagination, flooding us with light until we experience the full revelation of the hope of his calling. That is the wealth of God's glorious inheritance that he finds where? In us, holy ones. Man, I was reading in, in Colossians. Oh, this is so good. I, I, I don't like what I'm doing to you here, which is getting you to stand up, and then I start preaching on something else, and you're just standing there thinking, why didn't he let us sit back down? Um, but there was just this verse in Colossians that talked about, oh, yes, there's a divine mystery, a secret surprise that is concealed from the world for generations, but now it's being revealed, unfolded, and manifested for every holy believer to experience living it within you is the Christ who floods you with the expectation of glory. This mystery of Christ embedded within us becomes a heavenly treasure chest of hope filled with the riches of glory for his people, and God wants everyone to know it. Wow. Wow. And it's not this Christ consciousness. I'm not talking about that. It's the Christ that is directly connected to the single human God individual named Jesus Christ, okay? And the Bible says he by the spirit dwells in every believer. Wow. Okay, verse 19. I pray that we will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to us. How? Through faith. Then our lives will be an advertisement of his immense power as it works through us. This is the mighty power. That was released when God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realm. Now, you, you, may, you may sit down. I don't want to Episcopalianize you just too much. But I do like, I like some of that. Now, when you read through that prayer, did you feel like, hey, there's more to this than I realized? Yeah, there's always more. I mean, that whole idea about the resurrection power of Christ being in our bodies, that makes zero sense when you've got a cold, right? <laughs> and so what happens is you access all of this by faith. It's, it's not automatic. And, and all of this is true in Christ, not true out of Christ. And the point I'm trying to make here is the, the release and the effectiveness of the gospel is in direct proportion to the intimacy of your relationship you have with Jesus. It's not just an it experience. It's an interpersonal relationship that manifests as the truth of the gospel flowing out through your life. Does that make sense? It's about being in him. Matter of fact, if you, 
you could do a Bible study in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters of that one phrase, in him or in Christ, it shows up 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 times over and over and over again because every single thing we have, every benefit, every blessing is directly related to the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. And so I wanted to go through, and I've done this before. I'm going to do it again because it's just so important. I'm not apologizing for having done it, but I do want everybody to realize I don't have Alzheimer's, and I have done this before. So I just, you know. So I have listed, and it's a brief list, and it's not an exhaustive list, of aspects of what's been known as the finished work. And what that phrase means, I'm sure many of you know what that means. We're going to look at that term a little bit later in more depth. But the gospel is built on done, not do. The gospel, the good news, everything we find in Jesus is built on faith in what has been done for us, not in effort to obtain what we need. And that's a very, matter of fact, when you're in effort, the Bible actually says you come under a curse. When you try to earn from God what God freely gives, that's legalism. And the, the book of Galatians says you actually come under a curse. And I don't know how profound that thing is, but a good one's not, a, a small one's not a good one, you know. So um, we need to know that this is what God has freely given to us. And so, so many aspects of the benefits of the gospel we find in the past tense. And the reason is they're things that God has already done. One of the um, interesting comments I've heard and I've read and I've thought about is that Adam's first day, first full day alive was God's day of rest. And so Adam wakes up from creative being created, and he says, what are we going to do today? And the Lord says, nothing. He's just going to take it easy. And I, I felt like the Lord showed me this, that, um, and I've asked this question, why did God rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? Of course, he wasn't tired, but there's nothing left to do. And see, when you see that in the context of the gospel, when you see that in the context of what Paul said about Christ living in us, when you see that in the context of what's been deposited within us that we are basically in so many ways unaware of, um, we begin to understand this idea of the finished work, this idea of God having provided for his people in an extreme Wonderful, wonderful fashion. So I want to read some of these. Galatians 2.20 says we have been crucified with Christ. And if you do a little bit more than a surface study of the Bible, you realize that what that means is when Jesus died, you died. And that's a mystery. It's hard to understand that. Nevertheless, that's exactly what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the idea is that when Christ died, you died. And when you died, all your issues died. Your old man, your old nature has been put to death. 
Now, that makes no sense. Well, that's the idea. It's a mystery. That's why Paul says we need to ask God to open our eyes to what this is all about. But we have been crucified. We find that in the past tense. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, we find out that we have been raised. But God still loved us with such great love. He is so rich in compassion and mercy. Even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins. Oh, that is such something. Even when we were dead and doomed, not when we were repentant, even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins, he united us into the very life of Christ and saved us by his wonderful grace. That's incredible, the goodness of God. He raised us up with Christ, the exalted one, we ascended with him into the glorious perfection and authority of the heavenly realm, for we are now co-seated as one with Christ. So what it means to me to be raised means you were born again into a victorious position, number one, as being seated in the heavens. But it's more than that because it's not just this positional theology. I believe you are actually in a place in this realm called the heavens where you can access Every single thing God's provided for you by faith. And that's a whole nother message to get into all that. But that's what it means to me that we have been raised. It's not just positional. If you understand what happened, it becomes experiential. You begin to develop the process whereby faith you lay hold of. The kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. How many of you have hands? How many of you are in the kingdom? Well, if the king is at hand by faith, you may need to reach in there and take something you or your loved one might need. And I have actually seen that literally work. So we have been raised. Verse three or the number three, we have been forgiven. In Ephesians four, it says, forgive one another just as Christ forgave you. In Colossians 2.13, this realm of death describes our former state for we were held in sin's grasp. How many of you ever felt held in sin's grasp? I've have, I'll be vicariously the only one in here. I have felt held in sin's grasp. Let go of me. No, I'm grasped. Help me, God. Um, but now, ooh, you're in sin's grasp, but now we have been resurrected out of that realm of death never to return for we are forever alive and forgiven of all our sins. There should be some shouting going on somewhere. Number four, we have been healed. And this is quite, um, quite a difficult concept when you're sick to read the Bible that tells you you've been healed. But to me, there are two ways to look at that. You can look at it as a frustrated individual, or you could look at it as a hope-filled person who's saying, God has something for me I haven't laid hold of yet. I need to pursue. Because I believe, I believe in two things. I believe in spiritual hunger or faith. Do your finger like this. Okay, you're describing this is the spiritual hunger faith circle. Say spiritual hunger faith circle. And this is the God has already done everything in Christ's finished work circle. Okay. Now, those two circles cross right here. 
That's where everything happens. It's when you believe God has done things for you and your faith and your hunger lays hold of it. Because if you're, listen, if you're just a finished work person, you just go talking about what everything God has done for you. Meanwhile, you're not really doing any better than anybody else, but you can talk about all this. But if you don't have that understanding that you can't earn it, but it takes faith, but you don't get what God's already done, you become a real hard-nosed legalist. You're yapping the verses, but you're still not getting anywhere. You're boasting and, and making all these claims of how wonderful your Christian life is. But when you look at it, you go, I mean, anybody I know at a given point has to look at their life, even in Christ, and say, this ain't working. Anybody ever said that? I'm a Christian, but this just ain't working. This is supposed to work. It ain't working. It's potent. It's supposed to work. Why doesn't it work? That's a great question. I believe one of the answers is, it's where confidence in the work God has done for us in Christ Jesus meets hunger and legitimate real faith. Not head thinking, but something that literally goes on in the faith realm in your heart. Okay, we have been healed. Or you can do like me, you go get a knee replacement. See, there's a, there's a realistic aspect to being a Christian too. <laughs> okay. By whose stripes you were healed, we find in Isaiah 53 and 2 Peter 2. Ooh, I got a sprint. Uh, number five, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Past tense. Ephesians 1.3. And this is in the Passion Translation. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful Heavenly Father. What that means is we have access to what we need. We just need to learn how to access it. Um, we have been seated with Christ. I've already covered some of that. When you're raised, you're seated. Place of victory and uh, a place to access God's provision. Then Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. And what that means is Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. He stripped away from him every weapon and all their spiritual authority and a power to accuse us. One of the scary things about getting on Facebook and railing against people is that one of the clearest pictures of the devil is he's an accuser. And one of the quickest ways to exit the peace and presence of God is to get on Facebook and tell all those idiots they're idiots. Oh, wow. I just accused them. Sorry. You know what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm one of those idiots, so now I can humble myself. Yeah, but no. The accuser, that's the clearest picture of what the devil does. That's one of his most potent weapons. He accuses. He accuses. And as he accuses, we tend to justify ourselves. And when you justify yourself and you're not understanding the truth of the gospel, you can also get in a mess because the just shall live by faith. I can't justify myself spiritually by what I've done, but I'm justified because of what Jesus has done. Okay, Ephesians 2, 5, we have been made alive. Romans 5, 1, we have been justified. Romans 5.1, Romans 5.9 says two things about having been justified. We have been justified by faith, 
and we have been justified by his blood. And there's something very significant about the shed blood of Jesus and how it has the capacity when you put faith in it to justify you. And that word just justified, you've probably heard this before, it bears repeating, it is puts you into a place in your relationship with God just as if I had never sinned. What would that feel like? How many of you just like to feel that? Like you'd never sinned before in your life? Well, we're supposed to. If we understand justification by faith, we're supposed to. That's part of our inheritance. How many of you want your inheritance? We all want our inheritance. That's part of your inheritance. Um, we've been translated, number 10, from the, uh, or transferred, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, Colossians 1.13. And this is a great one, Ephesians 1.6. We have been fully and completely accepted. I heard T.D. Jakes say in a brief little Instagram clip, he said, people destroy their lives running after something they already have. People destroy their lives running after things they already have. What is that all about? You already are loved. You already are accepted. Think about the kind of things you might do or might have done to get other people to accept or like you. The risk you took. The the braggadocia whatever just to get people to know you're cool or you're or the sexual things. I mean, it all comes down, you know, even even in, in um, some sexual things. You can get involved sexually because you're looking for love or you're looking for acceptance or you're looking for some kind of security when you already have it. See, that's what the gospel tells us. We have been made accepted in the beloved. And that phrase is mentioned one other place in the New Testament, and it's in the first chapter of Luke where when the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and presents her with the opportunity to bear the child, the Lord Jesus, that's that same phrase when he greets her, highly favored. There are two people in the Bible, in the New Testament, that are highly favored, Mary and everyone else who believes in Jesus. Highly favored. Do you feel that way about yourself? If you do not feel that way about yourself, you have some ground. Come on. You have some ground to make up between how you view yourself and how God views yourself. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm preaching to myself, too, because I think ultimately all of us, all of us, um, all of us need more of God, don't we? I know the, 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 um, the idea that there's a difference in who you are and what you do. There's a difference in who you are and what you do. And if who you are and what you do are the same thing, when what you do, you can no longer do, you're in a, an identity crisis. But we should never have an identity crisis because what we do changes. It, it clearly reveals that we don't know who we are. See, I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm a child of God whose assignment is to preach. That's my assignment. It's not who I am. It's who people say I am. But you know how, 
how uh, safe it is to believe what people think about you. But no, you have to understand the difference between who you are and what you do because your assignment will change. I was in one ministry for 14 years, and then I was not in that ministry, and a lot of people related to me much different than they used to. Was um, I going to have an identity crisis? I decided not to. Yeah, I thought, well, that's not who I am. That's what I did. And every and this is this is really hard for men. The the moment you meet somebody, you don't say, "Are you a child of God?" You say, "What do you do?" And then they tell you who they are or who they think they are. Anyway, worth worth thinking about. Um, it's 12. We usually get out at 12.10. I might go 15 minutes. Um, is that okay? I hope it is. Anyway, because I think there's something here that's really going to help us. So I listed about 11 things there that are ours because of what Jesus did for us on the cross through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Some nights I wake up in the middle of the night, and um, so I might pray. I might try to figure out why I'm awake, you know, but I'll pray. And um, uh, it just happened within the last two weeks. Uh, I actually noticed the time. It was John 3.16. It was 3.16 in the morning, and a Greek word came to my mind that I felt like the Lord was pointing out to me. I just couldn't remember what it meant, but the word was tetelesta or tetelestai. Say that with me. Tetelesta. Tetelestai. Okay, tetelestai. That's close enough. I'm not Greek, so. And I wrote that word down, and I thought this is a little peculiar, and I... I looked it up. Um, actually, I Googled it. And because I didn't, at that point, wasn't convinced it was a Bible thing, you know, and it might not have been anything. Everybody got up in the night and got something really strange, and it was really cool that night. The next morning is a little bit sketchy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I just take notes and then I, I, I check it out. But to tell us, die is found twice in the New Testament and it literally means it is finished. We find it, I think it's in John, is it John 19? I think it's John 19, yes, John 19, I think it's verse 28. It is finished. Now, let's look at that. It is finished is the English translation of the Greek word to telestai, actually, the root word is uh, telos or telio. And the amazing thing was the word I got, the form of the word I got that night, was in the specific verb tense that Jesus spoke. And I think that's very significant because I think it will help us this morning. Um, 
It's the English translation of the Greek word. It is finished as the English translation of the Greek word, which was the last thing Jesus said before dying on the cross. To tell us that comes from the verb teleo, which means to bring to an end, to complete, or to accomplish. It's a crucial word because it signifies the successful end to a particular course of action. It's the word you would use when you climb to the peak of Mount Everest. It's the word you would use when you turn in the final copy of your dissertation. It's the word you would use when you make the final payment on your new car. It's the word you use when you cross the finish line of your first 10K run. The word means more than just I survived. It means I did exactly what I set out to do. But there's more here than the verb itself. Tetelesty is in the perfect tense in Greek. That's significant because the perfect tense speaks of an action which has been completed in the past with results continuing into the present. It's different from the past tense which looks back to an event and says this happened. The perfect tense adds the idea that this happened and it's still in effect today. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, or that Greek word, he meant it was finished in the past, it's still finished in the present, and it will remain finished in the future. He did not say, I am finished. I got this from the internet, so I know it's got some anointing on it, but it's not mine, it's somebody else's. He did not say, I am finished, for that would imply that he died defeated and exhausted. Rather, he cried out, it is finished, meaning I successfully completed the work I came to do. Tedelesti then is the Savior's final cry of victory. When he cried, he left no unfinished business behind. When he said it is finished, he was speaking the truth. When Jesus said Tedelesti, he meant that he had finished everything necessary to be done for you and I to enjoy every single thing I mentioned earlier. That's what he meant. Now, I've been reading some other things I think are quite significant. Because what what I'm after is I'm after us having faith to lay hold of what God gave us. I was reading um, a couple of things N.T. Wright wrote, who's a British theologian. Uh, Some people appreciate him, some others don't. Nevertheless, I think what I was reading was very vital. But here's what I concluded. God, well, it says in Romans 8, 3, we'll see this in a minute. God dealt with our sin in a most remarkable way. Here's my comment. He made an executive decision. Say executive decision. Executive decision. God determined by executive decision to end sin by locating it in one person at one time in the person of Jesus Christ to put it to death once for all. That's what Paul said in Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He put it to death. Then N.T. Wright says this. Paul said God condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah. The proof of that is that Jesus rises again, and that can only happen if evil and death have been dealt with. Your evil, your death, your sinfulness has been dealt with, and the proof is that Jesus rose from the dead. The proof is whatever it required, and I don't understand all of this quite honestly, but whatever it required to release us from who we were, from that old man, Jesus did once for all, and it continues to be true, and he did it in an absolute, complete way that requires nothing else ever being added to it. The proof is that by God's spirit, new things happen in the world. The kingdom of God goes out, changes lives and communities in a way that was unthinkable before. N.T. Wright said, is it God so loved the world he gave his only son or God so hated the world he killed his only son? And there's a lot of discussion going on about some of these ideas. From that point of view, obviously the thing to emphasize, I'm reading N.T. Wright again, is that what happens on the cross is the sovereign act of love on behalf of the Father himself. The death of Jesus reveals the love of God. Paul says in Romans 5, God commends his love to us in that while we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. So powerful. Second Corinthians 5.19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It doesn't even say he was reconciling himself to the world. It's as though God could handle all of our mess, but the mess we couldn't handle. The mess kept us from knowing God. The mess separated us from the creator. The mess kept us fulfilling our divine destiny, which was to be total whole humans, to come into total humanity. Oh, man. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. It's very powerful. Second Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's powerful. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. On the cross... This is another N.T. Wright quote. On the cross, Jesus took on himself that separation from God, which all other men know. He did not deserve it. He had done nothing to warrant being cut off from God. But as he identified himself totally with sinful humanity, the punishment which that sinful humanity deserved was laid fairly and squarely on his shoulders. That's why we shrank That's why he shrank in Gethsemane from drinking the cup offered to him. He knew it to be the cup of God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus drank it to the dregs. He finished it, finished the bitter cup, both physically and spiritually. Here is the bill, and on it the word T. 
tetelesti, finished, paid in full. The debt is paid. The punishment has been taken. Salvation is accomplished. Now, let me end with this story because I think it will show us what happens when a person believes the gospel. You find it in 2 Kings 7. Israel is surrounded and besieged by the Syrian army, and they're in the midst of a famine. They have nothing to eat. People were paying $600 for a donkey's head to eat, $45 for dove's dung to eat. And there was cannibalism. I mean, this was a very serious situation. And the king had blamed the prophet Elijah, but Elijah, rather, Elisha, not Elijah. Elisha prophesied that relief would come within 24 hours, but nobody believed him. Okay, then we find out that there were four lepers who sat outside the gate. They weren't allowed in the city to starve to death. And they, they were between the city gate and this enemy army that had besieged them. They were just going to starve them out. And so we find this verse in 2 Kings 7, 3 through 5. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? And I think what happened was they got hope. They said, why are we sitting here? Why sit we here till we die? If we say we'll enter the city, the famine's in the city, we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we'll only die. They had a sentence of death on them. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, nobody home. So they went to the enemy's camp thinking the worst they can do is kill us. And when they got there, they were gone because the Lord had caused the army, the Syrian army, to hear a sound of a great army approaching that was not there. And the Syrian army fled, leaving everything they had. And so we find this. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent, ate, drank, carried from it silver and gold clothing, went and hid them. So they came back, went into another tent, and carried some from there also, and went and hid it. So they were looting the camp, ate everything they wanted, took all the gold and silver they could hide. Then one of them said this, we're not doing the right thing. This is a day of good news. Let's say that together. This is a day of good news. That's the first time that phrase is used in the Bible. And that's the very phrase Jesus coined to describe the gospel, the good news. We're like a bunch of lepers who were between starvation and murder, and we decided we're just not going to settle for whatever this is. We're going to go do something even if it's wrong. And when they acted in faith, they discovered they had more stuff than they could eat, than they could carry off, or than they could hide. And so they thought, God's going to give us a hard time if we don't go back and tell those people the what? The good news. And guess what? When they went back, they had trouble convincing them that their good news was really good news. 
But we have good news. We really do. We have good news. Jesus is good. Okay. Why don't we stand together and we'll pray. Father, open our eyes. Let us see who you are and what you've done for us in such a way that will never be the same. Lord, give us that hunger to know you more. Give us that hunger to experience you more. Lord, don't let us give up and settle. Help us, Lord, to follow you with all our hearts, to so believe in the gospel that we tell somebody else how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.